Welcome back to Dectopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Jason Pfeiffer. He's a writer and editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. This is Technotopia. In the next 60 seconds, you're going to learn how the Flatiron School can change your life. The Flatiron School will help teach you everything you need to get the job in code, data science, or design. They'll also prepare you for the jobs that don't even exist yet, because this is a school designed to educate you in the art of change. So if you're feeling stuck, bored, or unfulfilled, Flatiron will teach you how to change things. You'll learn by making things, breaking things, and discovering how the future is being built. The results speak for themselves. Go to flatironschool.com slash podcast and read about our graduates' new careers, salary ranges, upcoming courses, and explore these exciting new careers. You can start building your own career in coding, data science, or digital design at one of Flatiron's local WeWork campuses, or you can take courses online. Go to flatironschool.com slash podcast, read the reviews, and sign up for a free intro course. That's all we ask. Enrollment is now open. It's time to future-proof yourself and change things, fix things, make things better, starting with you. Flatironschool.com slash podcast. Welcome back to Technotopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Jason Pfeiffer. He's host of the uh, Pessimist Archive podcast, and he's also editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. Welcome. This hey, is, thanks uh, for having me. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. So um, Entrepreneur Magazine, I'm fairly familiar with. I've heard of the, I've heard of the title, but why don't you tell us uh, what, what, you're, uh, what you're doing over there? Yeah, sure. So it's funny. The entre- I mean, entrepreneur, I think, is really a message that jives well with a, con- with a discussion of technology because to me, everything around entrepreneurship is really about embracing change. When people ask me, what is the number one trait that I see in successful entrepreneurs, the answer is that they are all willing to evolve and do what Reid Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, calls permanent beta, live uh-huh. in permanent beta. You know, Never think of yourself as a finished product. You're always evolving. You're always changing. And I, I really – I think that the, the, the most successful people are the ones who are, who are able to embrace this idea that what they are today cannot be what they are tomorrow and are willing to dive into new technology or willing to try new things. You know, I mean, Gary Vaynerchuk – Will he, that guy will throw himself into every new platform, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know it's like I remember when I remember when Instagram uh, first first uh, allowed gifts into its stories, <laughs> and I typed in entrepreneur like that that, that like the, an hour after they debuted the thing, and entrepreneur only brought up gifts of Gary Vaynerchuk. It's <laughs> like that guy, but like that's exactly what it's all about, right? It's like it's always just about embracing change and trying new things and. And making sure that today is not like yesterday. So the crazy thing about entrepreneurs, it's been around since '77, right? So it's been, it's been around for a long time. But mm-hmm. how is that? How has the vision of an entrepreneur changed? Because the old entrepreneurs were basically like the get-rich-quick scheme guys. I always, I always think of, uh, I always think of what's his name's dad in Gremlins, uh, uh, the boy's <laughs> dad with the with the weird like the bathroom buddy. Yeah, kind of I haven't thing. thought about that in so long. I know. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the word entrepreneur didn't mean anything for most of that time. Or the brand is the brand itself is forty years old. Mm-hmm. It's spun. I think it's spun out of a trade association or something like that. And for most of that time, right, people didn't know what entrepreneur meant. They certainly couldn't spell it, uh, which I'm guilty of as well. I li- I literally had the word entrepreneur misspelled in my email signature for like the first couple months that I was on this <laughs> job. It's terribly embarrassing. And yet now. 
that word means so much. That word is an identity and a badge of honor. There is a movement of people, a community of people who all identify with the word entrepreneur. And to them now, it means not a particular career path or a particular aspiration. I think of it as someone who makes things happen for themselves. Like that is what entrepreneur is. And so when I came on as editor in chief, which was in 2016, I really wanted to infuse that into the magazine that, that, that this is a magazine and this is a brand for and about people who are making things happen for themselves and acknowledging and embracing the unbelievable emotional challenge that that is, because that means that you're signing up for something that's going to feel lonely and crazy pretty much all the time. And you need to be in touch with a community of people who are going through the same thing. Okay. So let's, let's explore that a little. What is this? what does entrepreneurship mean in the future? It feels like, it feels like innovation is becoming kind of the purview of, of big companies, big corporations. Is there anything left for the little guy to, to figure out, to solve? Is oh, there... sure. Okay. I think, yeah. Well, I mean, listen, I, I, the, the, I think the history of the economy is that the big guy seems completely dominant and unreplaceable until the little guy comes uh, sort of pulls the rug out from under them. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes, sometimes the bigger a company gets, not sometimes, I'd say most of the time, the bigger a company gets, the slower it moves. And frankly, the more that it just doesn't bother with opportunities that could be big, but aren't big now. I hear that so much from, from entrepreneurs who, for example, for, I mean, here's, here's like a, here's like a, a, a silly, this is not really a silly little example because it's such a big industry. So I remember interviewing this one guy at a, uh, he, his name's Mark Zablow from uh, Cogent uh, World, which is a influencer marketing company. And he was at like a regular advertising company and had started experimenting early in the days of social media and, and influencers, quote unquote, he had started experimenting with influencer marketing, trying to mm -hmm. get some brands to put some dollars into influencers and the brands were into it. And the advertising firm was like, kind of happy to have it, but frankly, it was just small ball to them. You know, like they were their their job was like making television commercials or whatever was the big, big opportunity. And it just, it just organizationally didn't make sense for them to start getting into this fun little side project. And so Mark left and, and dove into that little side project and turned it into a giant business. So we, we all know the result of that. I mean, influencer marketing is now one of the key pieces of the advertising pie. And so that, that is, that's just the mentality of a big, of a big company. And sometimes they just, they just can't move fast enough. And sometimes I think that they are so deeply entrenched in the way that they do business that even if they see doom coming the mm -hmm. way that I would I would imagine the people at Blockbuster, they saw it. They didn't not see it. They saw it and they couldn't move that organization fast enough to respond to it. That's I mean that that is where the opportunity is, I think, for for the small guy is that the the you know, the big ones are looking at one thing in one way and it, that leaves open a whole other world of opportunity. Hmm. Okay. So let's um Let's talk a little bit about uh, pessimist archive. I think that's that's yeah. really applicable here. Uh, you basically look at things that that everybody said were going to be awful, right? Right, and they weren't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And today, there's something that you can't imagine anybody ever said was going to be awful. Everything around you, everything that you're 
using uh, where, wherever you are right now listening to this podcast like just look around you mm -hmm. pretty much everything was resisted so you see a bicycle you see a car you see electricity recorded music which is you know the variant of what you're listening to right now all of that stuff was resisted and 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 declared um, terrible for us in one way or another, too complex for us to adapt to, uh, uh, leading to horrible, unforeseen consequences. It's and it's just it's almost always not it's just not true. Uh, the history of technology is of people making predictions of doom and gloom and then it not happening. Hmm. Okay, so like, give me an example of something that you guys have uh, that you've looked at before or over the past couple of weeks. Oh, sure. Well, so the, the I mean, the most recent episode is actually not about technology. It's about the novel because, uh, mm -hmm. you know, this is originally we started it as a show and, and talked about it as technology. And then we we broadened to talk about innovation because innovation lets in subjects like chess and coffee and things that you know all, were also resisted. But um, but the novels, well, the novel, let's just go with the novel. But we can I can also talk about things that are kind of more. Oh, more the novel sounds fascinating because I. Cause yeah, it, great. Like the the um, penny De dreadful or whatever, right? Was the uh, was the was the big uh, big was all the rage for a while. Yeah, the uh, well, the, the dime novel mm -hmm. uh, was yeah the dime novel was was terrifying. So uh, so here's the thing with the here's, here's the thing with the novel. Um, the novel was in I mean it, it evolved uh, really from the um, from the time of the um, the Romans, but uh, it was really it bloomed once printing technology became cheaper, which is really in the Victorian era. And that is when great experimentation began in the, in, in the novel where people were able to publish all sorts of different kinds of stories. And uh, two, two real schools of thought uh, popped up um, about how dangerous the novel was. One was that the novel was especially dangerous to women, um, that it would corrupt their minds and their morals, uh, that it drained their bodies of energy and could leave them <laughs> infertile and insane. Um, and uh, and then the other people who were, were being concerned over, of course, of course, think of the children. Sure. The children. Uh, and uh, even people like, uh, like Thomas Jefferson uh, were very concerned about children reading novels. It was going to fill their minds with dangerous ideas. They were going to become violent, right? The conversation that we had maybe 10, 20 years ago Maybe in some corners we're still having this stupid conversation that video games makes children violent. That was what people were saying about the novel, mm -hmm. and uh, and so right. So there was quite a lot of resistance and amazing, amazing stories um, that you can find in newspapers from the late 1800s and really up until like the 1930s. I found this stuff where uh, you'll have educators and doctors writing these pieces about how children get too engrossed in the novel. It becomes too addictive and they stop they stop being social and they stop wanting to go out <laughs> with their friends. Right. And you could that is what people say about the iPhone now. Right. So if you're saying that, if you hear somebody saying that about the iPhone, like that is what they said about the novel. There's no reason why it's true if it wasn't true about the novel. And yeah, you can say, oh well the iPhone is more it's more addictive and, and you travel with it and it buzzes and, and fine, fine. Every new innovation or technology is different in some form, seems more engrossing in some form than whatever came before it. But I'm just telling you that we have been uh, we've been accusing new forms of of entertainment and communication of the same thing 
for thousands of years and it hasn't come true yet, I don't see why it would come true now. Hmm. So that's interesting. So let's let's the the idea that the the novel is so engrossing that it's have maybe our brains just get uh get better at accepting engrossing things and then and then maybe the maybe maybe the the iPhone is basically the end of the world, right? I think that might be the end of potentially engrossing stuff. Yeah, I think that people fear that we have no capacity to adapt. Mm-hmm. You know, that that I mean, that's a a real pattern that I see across time is a concern that we can't adapt to something new, and that whatever we have that's new will replace wholesale what's old. Here's a a nice example that I love is. In, oh, I forget the exact date, um, late 1800s, uh, when the phonograph was a, a new invention, uh, so recorded, this is the, the dawn of recorded music, and many, many people were very upset about this. There was, this, the city of Philadelphia banned phonographs from a public park because they thought it would create disease of the ear. And the John Philip Sousa, who we know now as the the author of uh, of many uh, famous patriotic marches he was he was a really huge deal back at that time mm-hmm. he went on a campaign against recorded music and <laughs> his his arguments often were about how recorded music would dangerously replace something that um that 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 he felt was kind of core to humanity, and he couldn't imagine us adapting to it. So my favorite example, though there are many of them, is that he he said that now follow the logic. So you bring a phonograph into your home, and once you have a machine that can sing to you, well then you don't need to sing yourself, <laughs> and that means that mothers will not sing to their children; they will just play the phonograph for their children. And because children grow up imitating their mothers, the children will not grow up imitating their mothers singing; they will grow up imitating the machine, and thus the next generation will be machine-like. That's what he said, <laughs> and he was serious, you know. And that, like, that is that's someone who just cannot imagine the human brain being able to adapt to something new. Hmm. That the they think that that we've reached the pinnacle, right? That we have at whatever moment we're in everything we could possibly use or adapt to. That we we were we're we're, we're maxed out as a species, and that that's. It's just not how it works. It's not how the human brain works. Like I, I, the parent in me wants to say, look, the iPhone's the worst thing in the world. But I think, but I think all of these, all these counterexamples are definitely, uh, are definitely pretty effective at, uh, at, at reducing that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm a parent too. I have a three and a half year old son and another on another kid on the way, and I give my kid a phone. I mean, you know, you set limits, mm-hmm. of course, but. Honestly, I think that if I, but my kid loses, he loses interest in the phone after a while, right? Like if I, if I gave him the phone and walked away for 10 hours, it's not like he would sit there for 10 hours looking at the phone. He would get bored. He'd want to do something else. Like the phone is a fun novelty like anything else, but then he'll move on to his cars and his blocks. Um, yeah, I mean, like, listen, everything within, everything within moderation. Uh, but I don't think that there's something inherently dangerous. Uh, you know, you, you, you get these, one of these tricks that, people who are opposed to new technology will always use. And this this goes back, I've seen this go as far back as the automobile, but I'm sure it goes back even further. I suppose it'll go back as far as um, any kind of brain 
technology or or understanding existed uh, is that the brain is altered by the technology. So mm -hmm. there is there's a wonderful. If you, I think if you Google this, you'll probably, it'll be pulled up. If you just Google the phrase, the automobile brain, you'll find this thing that ran in newspapers. Um, it was like a side-by-side -side comparison of a normal brain and then like a kind of de <laughs> deformed brain oh. from somebody who's learned how to use a car. And, uh, but you get that now today, right? Where, the, where people will say, well, when, when people are using the iPhone, this other part of the brain lights up. It's like, yeah, when you use anything, the brain lights up. But give somebody any new thing, the brain lights up. If somebody had never seen a Rubik's Cube before and you gave it to them, their brain would light up. It doesn't tell you anything. Mm -hmm. That's not information. So, but, but people don't, people just, they treat anything new and any reaction to that new thing as inherently bad. New is not bad. In what case? Give me a case when, and and this is supposed to be an optimistic podcast, so it's, it's yeah. funny of me to ask yeah, for yeah. the for the pessimistic view. Would give me a case where it actually knew it was bad, where everybody uh, was saying it was right. Oh yeah, that's a good question. Well, I mean, so there's certainly health related things, right? Like uh, a cigarette kind of situation, or, or cigarettes, sure. Yeah, right. Cigarette. Um, and and there are and there were definitely new new innovations that um, took some time to become safe. Uh, so the, I mean, the bicycle is one of those, right? Like the bicycle, the bicycle sort of came in three different phases. Um, there was, there was the first bicycle, uh, which didn't have any kind of shocks and was super heavy and was called a bone rattler. And, uh, and then the way that the, the way that they tried to fix that was to create the, um, Oh, I'm blanking on the name right now, but you've seen it. Uh, you'll see. There's a guy in my neighborhood in Park Slope, Brooklyn, that uh, drives around, rides around one. The of penny these. farthing. It's, it's, the penny farthing, right? Exactly. <laughs> With the little, the little wheel and the giant wheel, right? So that was actually that. That was the reason that they did that. It wasn't because it was such a. It wasn't for fun. It was. It was an. It was basically an attempt to create a, a bicycle that w wouldn't rattle around, like it was a sort of shock preventer. Um, and uh, and then the third one was what was what was called the safety bicycle because they had resolved a lot of the safety concerns. So <laughs> certainly in the first two generations of the bicycle, where it wasn't perfected, a lot of people were getting hurt on the bicycle, right? And that's fair. Like that's a that's a problem, and you should figure out how to make the things safer. Um, but what was never true was that because we are. Uh, because we are driving something with a wheel that spins infinitely, that our brains cannot <laughs> cannot um, manage the infinite spin, and thus we will go insane, which is a thing that people said. Or that uh, that people, when they ride bicycle, will develop what's called bicycle face. Have you ever heard of that? Sure. I, I, when I had that in high school, it was a rough. It was a rough year. Yeah, it was rough. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Luckily, now there's just some over-the-counter uh, sure. that you can get for bicycle <laughs> face. So right. So bicycle face was um, that we were we, because you were moving uh, more nat more faster than humans should naturally move the wind against your face will stretch your face out and you will have a resulting bicycle face, which is a condition, right? This is ridiculous stuff, right? So, so we can focus on, yes, let's make this product safer. Let's re-engineer it over and over again until it's better and better and better. Um, but let's not, let's not think that it, it, it fundamentally impacts us in some, in some biological way. That's nonsense. So... I just I want to this is this is amazing stuff. So, is the human mind inherently pessimistic about uh, about advances? Are we are we inherently scared? Are we inherently conservative? Is there something? I mean, we could even carry this back to the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur isn't scared of something new. They're not scared of bicycle face to become Lance Armstrong, right? So right. what 
what is it about the human psyche that you think and and what can what can prevent somebody who's thinking in these terms to uh from from being scared of every single single thing that shows up yeah it's a really good question i i i mean i think that we are inherently um I think that we are inherently optimistic and then and then we become inherently pessimistic. I think we make a shift at some point in our lives, right? Because we when we're young, we want to embrace all the new things and then we master the new things and then we don't want anything new. We don't want anything more new. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we and you why so why do we do that? Uh you know, I I I wrote this story for Medium uh, a little earlier in the year which tried to explore and explain why the older generation older always hates upon the younger generation mm-hmm. right like millennials they're all self entitled they're all so self obsessed and they're they, they're entitled and they're lazy and there are all these things right the, you can't say anything about millennials that wasn't said about every previous generation every generation has the same insults lobbed at them which of course means that none of it's ever true it's ridiculous so why do we do this and um I, I, I talked to I talked to a lot of people, um, and including some historians. And the the conclusion that I came away from, which was really inspired by this uh, this uh, scholar of the of the um, medieval times, because um, he was telling me about this is a whole side tangent here, but he was telling me about um, about children who um, or, or parents who would sue their children, children who would sue their parents over land rights in the middle ages mm-hmm. um because because parents were supposed to pass the land down to the children at some point that was or to the sons that was the that was just sort of how it worked and land was everything at that time so if you owned land you had a voice in the community and land was money land was everything mm-hmm. and um and parents for whatever reason sometimes would not want to pass the land down to the child as was prescribed by law and so they would uh, there would be a lawsuit and so uh, Andrew Rabin uh, was the one of uh, University of Louisville was the one who made this comparison to me, and he said, "So why, you know, why were parents not why were parents not doing that?" And the answer is because, well, as soon as you pass the land down, you are replaced, you hmm. are done. You know, oh. like you, you've 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 you're outmoded. You mm-hmm. you know, and and it also means that you have to accept that. Um, that you're not as important as you thought you were, <laughs> you know, like somebody else can hold this land like as well. Like it's not just you and that we, I think that our natural instinct is to resist that idea to say that, no, we are, I am very important. And that the way that I did things is the right way and is very important. And then when people see the next generation do something different, uh, and, um, and, and find new ways to express their desires and interests in ways that the older generation cannot understand mm-hmm. well it looks like a it looks and feels like a direct assault upon everything that that generation knows and i think that people naturally resist that and you know that's i think what people do in business and that's what they do with technology too when something new comes along their first instinct is to say well this cannot replace me damned i'll be damned if this thing replaces me that's like that's why the that's why the butter industry demonized margarine when it <laughs> when it arrived in the 1800s right i'll be damned if my butter mm-hmm. is replaced and uh, and you just you see versions of that over and over um if john philip Souza, i mean why why was he so opposed to recorded music uh, here's my hypothesis because it was a challenge to to his 
livelihood. He mm-hmm. was a man. He was a man of live music. He he put on performance, live performances. And here comes this thing that's going to present itself as just as good, if not better, than what he was doing. Screw that. That thing's terrible. No, that thing <laughs> must be harmful, right? That that's just what we do. We don't want to be replaced. And so my challenge to everybody is to recognize that in themselves and then do your absolute damnedest to stay relevant. But you will not stay relevant by trying to make everyone around you stop and accommodate you. That will never, ever work. If you stop, the only thing that you will do is stay in one place while everybody passes you. (laughs) It's the only thing that you'll do. So you have to keep moving, stay relevant and like look like just find it in yourself. And I know and listen, I'm 38. I know that I am I am, I guess, probably within the next 10 years kind of moving into the stage of my life where probably I become a little more conservative or or, or, or I'm primed to and say, well, I have these skills and so I'm going to protect these skills and I, I know how to do these things and I use this these technologies and I'll just I'll just keep using those. And I'll, I'll, I'll start to resist new things. I mean, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I, I see that myself already a little bit, right? Like I, I, I'm not on Snapchat. I looked at Snapchat and I was like, eh, not for me. Don't want it. But you know what? Maybe <laughs> it was really useful if I was on Snapchat. I don't know. So you have to, I, I, it's just, it's a human instinct that I think you need to push against. Okay. Well, that, that's, that's like, that would actually be a good, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, gift that you got. You just, uh. You oh, just, uh... Gary! Gary and I have Gary and I have rapped on this before. Yeah, no, we 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 have. He's uh, and he he. I don't know if he listens to the podcast, but he follows Pessimist Archive on Twitter. So there's something. All right. Well, yeah. We'll we'll, we'll let him know that you just uh, you just gave a a stirring a stirring um, rant for uh, the the personal growth. Yeah, even hey, unto listen, death. Even unto death, death. Even unto death is right. Stir, stir <laughs> yeah, if a stirring rant. Uh, that's uh, that's my skill set. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, uh, this is great stuff, Jason. So, where can people uh, see you? Have, you have, actually have a book out. You have a few things running, running around. Oh yeah, I know. I have, I have too many things. Um, yeah, I'm gonna like self promoting becomes obnoxious at some point. Uh, so, I right. So, the, I mean, the most relevant thing I think for for your audience is please go check out Pessimists Archive. Mm-hmm. You can find it wherever you find podcasts. It's uh, it's it's great. It's a history of unfounded fears of innovation and. Um, I also have another podcast called Problem Solvers for those who are entrepreneurs. Uh, each episode is uh, about an entrepreneur solving an unexpected problem in their business. And uh, right, Entrepreneur Magazine. Um, my my, I have a I have a romantic comedy out called Mr. Nice Guy. In case uh, mm-hmm. anyone's in the in the market, it's as about you do. yeah, sure. As you do, yeah, sure. Uh, I wrote it with my wife. It's about two people who each week sleep together and then critically review each other's performance in a magazine. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, <laughs> no, don't try that at home. Oh. And. Um, and uh, jasonpfeiffer.com is uh, is just uh, a good place to go to find links to everything. All right, Jason, this has been a blast. Uh, thanks for joining us on Technotopia. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. This has been Technotopia. I'm John Biggs. We will see you next week. Technotopia is brought to you by Happy Fun Corp. Happy Fun Corp is a design-driven technology company in Brooklyn, New York, that specializes in building mobile and web applications for startups and Fortune 500 companies. Whether it's a new mobile or web application that will help people experience the internet in a fun new way, or software that will interface with a new piece of top secret hardware, Happy Fun Corp is always up to the challenge. Big or small, Happy Fun Corp loves building software and loves working with great people. Come build with them. HappyFunCorp.com Technotopia is also sponsored by Jaywalk. 
Jaywalk is a new app that pays you to walk. You can try it out at jaywalk.me. It's created by me, John Biggs, and a few of my friends. Jaywalk.me, please check it out.